Hi, friends. This is Michael Vickers. This week, millions of people are processing the news of another loved and admired celebrity who died by suicide. No doubt the world has lost too many people we love to mental health challenges. It can be difficult to understand or make sense of the news that somebody we looked up to, admired, or touched our lives died from suicide. When we read some of the online comments, we realize that we still have a long way to understanding mental health and its impact on all of us. Comments like, how could they do that to their family? What a selfish thing to do. There are so many resources available for people or terrible timing, so close to the holidays. I admit I used to have those thoughts until I started educating myself about mental health and its impact. When someone dies from a terminal disease, we don't say, what a selfish thing to do, or I can't believe they died so close to the holidays. When my father passed after suffering from liver cancer, I didn't say, what a shame, how could he do this to his family? It might be helpful for us to think of dying from suicide the same way as we think about dying from a terminal disease. Mental health experts teach us that just as disease can deteriorate one's physical body, mental illness can impair the processes of the mind. When someone has a disease that deteriorates the body, we can see it. When someone is fighting mental health challenges, they often feel shame and we're unable to see the pain they are experiencing. We need to remember that just because we can't see it doesn't mean the pain they are experiencing isn't real or overwhelming. As Frank King mentions in this podcast interview, it's important to understand that those suffering from mental illness are wanting to end their pain and that is different than wanting to end their life. That's why death by suicide isn't selfish. It's what happens when someone loses their battle with mental illness. My guest in this Encore episode teaches us to change the way we think and talk about suicide. Join me now for my Encore conversation with Frank King. In three, two, one. National Suicide Prevention Week is an annual week-long campaign to inform and engage health professionals and the general public about suicide prevention and the warning signs of suicide. By drawing attention to the problem of suicide, the campaign also strives to reduce the stigma surrounding the topic, as well as encourage the pursuit of mental health assistance and support people who have attempted suicide. To help us understand this important issue and how we can increase our awareness and help others is my guest, the suicide prevention comedian, Frank King. Suicide is a leading cause of death in the United States and a major public health concern. And when a person dies by suicide, the effects are felt by family, friends, and communities. And when it comes to suicide, language matters. Suicide is preventable. But to prevent it, we must talk about it. And the way we talk about it matters. And so to help us understand and learn more about suicide is my guest, Frank King. Frank, welcome back to the program. We just had you on the program talking about your TEDx Talks and how to get a TEDx Talks. I know you've done seven of them. And we're excited to have you back because the subject matter is of relevance and it's important. And this is Suicide Prevention Week, I believe, in the United States and worldwide. It culminates, I think, Mm -hmm. on the 16th as well. So it's a big issue. Let's give some background. First of all, you've been a writer on The Tonight Show for other comedians for over 20 years. You've been a stand-up comic. Let's give our listeners just a little bit of the background because I know you left school and you're going into the insurance or financial 
financial services industry, then how you became a comedian. But then more importantly, how did you evolve from being a comic to this subject and how this subject became important to you? Well, I always wanted, Michael, to be a speaker and not just a funny speaker, but a speaker who was funny. And I got to tell you, I was always jealous when I worked in the financial services industry back in the early 80s. Insurance companies have tons of meetings and they hire tons of motivational speakers. I saw all of the old school, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, Jim Rohn. And I thought, man, I could do that right. if I just had something to teach people. So I had to settle for being a stand-up comedian for 25 years. And then with the last recession, 2008, 9, 10, my wife and I lost everything in a chapter seven bankruptcy and depression and suicide runs in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. Goodness. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And if you're that close to an actual suicide and you're already hardwired for it, Chances of you seriously thinking about taking your life go up. And sure enough, in 2010, April, after the bankruptcy, I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Oh, that's awful. I had a million dollars in term insurance, and I knew that my wife would be heartbroken, but she would no longer be broke. Spoiler alert, (laughs) I did not pull the trigger, which is where the humor comes in. A friend of mine came up after a keynote not long ago. And said to me, hey, man, how come he didn't pull the trigger? And I said, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? It's funny personal stories. It helps to destigmatize right. people who are having thoughts of suicide. Now, let me give you a little good news as we begin here, Michael. Suicide is A, the most preventable cause of death on the planet. B, 8 out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent, can't make up their mind. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, which means you can make a difference, you can save a life, and you can do it by doing something as simple as you and I are doing right here, and that is being brave enough to start the conversation. There's lots of indicators, and doing the homework and research for this interview with you, I was amazed at all the possibilities and things you were not aware of, and so hopefully we'll bring some of that awareness to our audience as well. Language matters with this, doesn't Frank? It, it even starts with the phrase commit suicide. That's the term I used to use. And mental health advocates say that this wording actually contributes to the stigma and fear and may actually prevent people from seeking help when they need it. Yes, because commit as a word has a lot of baggage. You commit a sin, you commit adultery, you commit a crime. Depression is a chronic illness. Like cancer is a chronic, can be fatal illness. Right. Nobody commits cancer. Nobody commits diabetes, a chronic illness. And so if we could change the language and you're helping by saying died by suicide or completed a suicide rather than commit suicide. Right. Yeah. The language is different. Now let's kind of define the terms. How would we actually define suicide? Obviously it's when people harm themselves with the goal of ending their life and they die as a result. And a suicide attempt is when people harm themselves with the goal of ending their life, but they do not die. So we want to, like you said, avoid using terms as committing suicides or successful suicide or failed suicide when we refer to suicide attempts, as these terms often have those negative connotations, right? Yes. And you said they attempt suicide to end their lives. Actually, the majority of people who die by suicide did not want to die. I did not want to die. Most people who attempt suicide, perhaps complete suicide, are simply trying to end the pain. If there's another way to end the pain and live, they would probably, I would have chosen. 
but that seems to be at that moment, the only way to end the pain. And it seems like the pain has so many different risk factors and who's at risk. And it's people of all genders, all ages, all ethnicities, they can all be risk. And it seems related to pain, but not pain as we would think of it. So some of the main risk factors are chronic pain, which you're talking about, but then there's family history of a mental disorder. Yep. So talk a little bit about that one, because that's one you have experience with as well. And then there's family history of suicide, substance use, exposure to family violence, physical sexual abuse. I read one point, even being released from prison or jail can be that, or just exposure to others. We see people or celebrities, and even that can have an impact on us. So talk about some of the different pain and risk factors and what that looks like. Well, depression is probably the number one risk factor. The depression in bipolar, the depressive state of bipolar is is more dangerous than garden variety depression. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lack of sleep, insomnia, other chronic illnesses, pain you mentioned, and it varies by culture. African-Americans, Native Americans, Alaskan-Americans, Latinos or Latinas, all have a higher rate of suicide completion for cultural reasons. Because oftentimes in those groups, not always, but oftentimes they don't come out. People don't come out and share the fact that they are living with these thoughts just based on cultural norms. I've got a friend, one of my TEDx coaching clients, she has schizoaffective disorder, three suicide attempts, and I helped to get a TEDx. And she talked about those publicly in her TEDx, and her mom was furious. They're from Pakistan, and she said, people in our community, honey, don't talk about those things. And my friend said, that's exactly why I did it, because I cannot be the only person from Pakistan who's ever had these feelings. Right. So it depends on LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. The T in LGBTQ, those kids, young people, trans, 40% of them, think seriously about ending their lives, whereas 4% of heterosexual or binary kids. So 10 times, 10 times the rate of kids who are binary. So yeah, it depends on culture, depends on sexual orientation. And like you said, pain, lack of sleep. You know what the number one addiction, the number one addiction for suicide, and by the way, addiction is also changing now for alcohol and drugs is now generally called substance abuse disorder, but gambling addiction has the highest suicide rate of any of those. Really? I've got a client who just got a TEDx, TEDx Spokane. He lost a million dollars when he was in full-blown addiction to gambling, and not all of it his. And fortunately, he's in recovery. He's making restitution to the people whose money he borrowed. But yeah, that is the number one so-called addiction for suicide is gambling addiction, which I had no idea it was that bad. And you know what else, Michael? It varies by occupation. I speak to the top six of the top 10 groups at-risk occupations for suicide, dentists, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys, construction, and agriculture. In construction, get this, Michael, 1,000 people die every year by construction accident. Guess how many die by suicide? 5,000 die by suicide. You're five times more likely to jump off the building than you are to fall off the building. It's just outrageous. Wow. And dentists, they've always led the way as far as I remember back in the 70s and 80s and looking at it. Yeah. You know what it is nowadays? Same thing for veterinarians, physicians, and attorneys. Most of those people, when they come out of professional school these days, have a half million dollars on average in student loan debt, right? which is financial stress, which leads to physical stress and mental stress. Stress is the killer of dentists, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys. It's stress instigated or exacerbated mental or physical ailments, high blood pressure, stroke, heart attack, depression, thoughts of suicide. Stress is the linchpin in all that. That's the one common denominator. And I think that's why you got into it as a way to relieve that stress or get people to laugh at things or situations or at themselves, right? Drew you to the topic in the first place, or if they're looking at it from a different lens or perspective and maybe get out of themselves and are looking at it from, say, a comedian's eyes. 
Well, that, Michael, and when I get up on stage as a man, because eight out of 10 people who die by suicide these days are men. And it's because of, they say nowadays, the technical term is toxic masculinity. But when I was a kid, and I think this is far more descriptive, growing up in the Southern United States, it was simply put, big boys don't cry. Right. And that's why eight out of 10 people who die by suicide, that's one of the big reasons, because men don't reach out because they're men. They feel like they have to be strong. They're not allowed to share their emotions. So as a man, if I go on stage and I tell the audience, look, I am nuttier than a squirrel turd and become vulnerable... (laughs) It allows them to do the same. I feel like the permission fairy, right. ding, because I'll always allow a half an hour after every keynote for individual questions, individuals who want to share a story. And, and sometimes it's two people lined up. Sometimes it's 10, Michael. And they tell me things they've never told anybody else. Most of the conversations start this way. Frank, I've never told anybody this. Hmm, I get that a lot because I have just given them permission by being vulnerable. Brene Brown said, was listening to her book on Audible and she goes, vulnerability is a superpower. And I thought that's my superpower because I'm vulnerable. Right. This gives them permission to be vulnerable because they know they can tell me without any kind of recrimination. That's what we're after is for people to be able to give voice to these feelings and experiences without the stigma and recrimination and being judgment. belittled for, yeah. you're not too strong. You're not strong enough. Yeah. Suck it up. Yeah. And judgment. We do that. Well, and you know what you say, according to CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, women are more likely to attempt suicide than men, but men are more likely to die by suicide than women. And it's because I think men tend to attempt suicide using more lethal methods where women might use drugs or prescription drugs or whatever. But that seems to be a common thing as well. Three times as many women, by the way, attempt than men, but men, as you said, tend to complete because they use a firearm. When men ask on your Q&A sessions after you're speaking on the subject, what kind of issues do you hear from the men? Like, what are the things that are triggers for them? Because, I mean, I can't say we're all normal because we all deal with stuff, right? We all grow up with different things. What happens? What are those triggers for people? Is it something that's hardwired into us? Is it something that it's generational, like you said? Is it coming through DNA, if you will, through who our parents were, who our grandparents were, our environmental? What do we know about it? Well, there are several. Sometimes it's in the DNA. I have a condition called chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people in my tribe, suicide is always an option on the menu for a solution for problems large and small. I say to the audience, look, here's how small. My car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts, unbidden, get it fixed by noon, or I could just kill myself. Every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been another person in the audience who has that condition. And I'm telling you the relief. Now, that's in the DNA. I was in Cincinnati. I spoke to a construction outfit, 180 construction workers, mostly men. Afterwards, when I said, look, I'll hang around if anybody's got any individual stories they want to share or ask questions. Young man came up, African-American, mid-20s, and he's wearing all his construction gear. He's just standing in front of all his friends and co-workers, and he's crying. He's crying so hard he cannot speak. And so I waited. And finally, when he gathered himself, he said that he couldn't sleep. He hadn't slept in the last couple of days and that he had lost three people close to him in the last year to violence, including his daughter who died in his arms. And he works on the fifth floor of the building that I was standing in. And he said, I think about jumping every day. So that is it's probably not in his DNA. It's probably just simply situational depression and thoughts of suicide. Right. So it could be DNA, could be kicked off by a situation or triggered by a situation. No. People consider it, and it's hard to understand, I guess, because I've never thought about taking my own life. And if you've never thought about taking your own life, you might find it difficult to understand why someone would even consider dying this way. Yeah. And I know even experts don't fully understand why some people do and others don't. 
and through a range of mental health issues and lay circumstances can play a big role. So why do people consider it as an option? I mean, we talked about pain, but what triggers and goes, okay, this is a solution to my problems? Well, for me, that's just on the menu. It's it a coping up. mechanism. Yeah, it's like you can do this, this, or you can just kill yourself, which is your brain going, hey, I got a solution for this. You're not going to like it, but I can solve this problem. Again, it's all about ending the pain. They see no other way out generally to end the pain. Here's where it's dangerous, Michael. If the person is younger, I'm 65. I have major depressive disorder, which is not situational generally. It's like a wheel with a flat spot that comes up every now and then. I've been most depressed and suicidal at some of the best times in my life. The good news is I've been through my cycle, which lasts about three days, 72 hours, so many times. I know when I began to cycle down that within 72 hours, yeah, I call it surfing. I'm surfing the crazy. I just get on my board and I (laughs) I go with it rather than fight it. That's excellent. Because it's like fighting the tide. You might as well, with a broom, you might as well give up. You're not going to beat it. But if you're much younger and people with depression tend to think in the immediate, look, if right. I'm not going to ever feel any better than this. And this is as good as it gets. I'm done. Which a friend of mine did a TEDx and the premise was depression is simply a visitor comes and it goes. A Churchill called it the black dog. It came and went. The dog came and went. When the pandemic hit as professional speakers, our careers pretty much came to a standstill. Oh boy. And I had a whole bunch of stocks that a bunch of airline companies and things that's tanked, right? So in a week I saw a lot of value disappear, including <laughs> yeah, my no job. Kidding. Including my job. And I cried for a week. It was like anxiety. And I wouldn't say I'm an anxious person, but I definitely felt that. And the first time you go through that feeling, it's very scary. You hyperventilate, you're like, Oh my goodness, this is awful feeling. And then once you've had that as you've said, and you've gone through that cycle and you recognize there's a pattern to this, as long as you're self-aware, you can recognize, hey, where am I in this stage? I'm stage one, depression, stage two, however you want to label it. So you've been able to identify where you are in the process and know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. And I just, I put one foot in front of the other. Usually at that point, I don't always make a physical to-do list, Mm -hmm. but if I'm having trouble getting out of bed, I do something called gamification. And what that means is if I'm having trouble getting out of bed because I'm depressed, I actually make a physical to-do list with a pen and paper, and I write down six things. And the game is, as soon as I scratch off number six, I don't care if it's three in the afternoon, broad daylight, I can do what I've been wanting to do the entire day is crawl back in bed and and binge watch Netflix. I win. Yeah, that's Uh, You know what that is? That's part of my self-care plan, Michael. I realized when the pandemic started, when I was talking to some of my crazy friends, that we were all very well situated for the pandemic because each and every one of us had a self-care plan in place that we practiced every day. Excellent insight. Yeah. I wake up in an uncertain world, whether there's a pandemic or not. And I did keynote after keynote virtually on teaching neurotypical people how to create a self-care plan because... Why would you have a self-care plan if you weren't living with depression or some other mental illness? You wouldn't. How would you know you were depressed if you'd never been? You wouldn't. So I spent a great time educating neurotypical people. Here's the upside of that story, Michael. I think after the pandemic began to wind down, people who might not ordinarily have empathy for somebody who was depressed all of a sudden had been through a little slide and they're like, man, if, oh God, I could imagine living with this my entire life. Right. So that may be the silver lining. Well, it's interesting and you use the term 72 hours too. They always tell us to have an emergency evacuation plan and a preparedness plan in case you're in California or in Oregon or wherever you are in an earthquake, be able to take your stuff with you and you've got a survival. So having a mental survival plan is 
actually a good idea, even for 72 hours or a course of action. That's good insight. Yeah. And I practice it every day. It's five things. It's diet. I'm on the keto diet, as you know, and I do intermittent fasting. Yep. Exercise, exercise every day. Yep. Good night's sleep is restorative. Here's what bothers me about sleep, Michael. People nowadays, it's a metric. They brag about how little sleep they can get by on. That's yeah, not a good badge thing. of honor. Mm-hmm. Yes, I get by on three hours sleep. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, you know, good right. for you. So diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation. I do two short 29-minute guided meditation today, usually after a meal, and a little bit of medication, nothing major. Here's a tip for you folks on medication. Psychotropics. One-third of the people who are taking a particular psych drug love it. The other third, it's okay. The last third, hate it. So if your psych meds are not working, then I have a DNA cheek swab like Ancestry. They take your DNA and they try to match it to the psychotropic that works best with your metabolism. They narrow it down to a list of one or two. So you have a lot less experimentation. Go on, doesn't work, taper off. Go on, doesn't work, taper off, which is like being a lab rat. So if your meds are not working, it's only a couple hundred bucks. Most insurances cover it. So just type in depression, medications, DNA, cheek swab, and you'll find half a dozen companies now that do that. It's interesting hearing your daily list. Mine's very similar and I don't fight those issues. Diet, so I intermittent fast till noon. I'm on that 16-hour spread, noon to 8 o'clock. Yeah. And weekends, maybe I my clock goes off a little bit by half hour, an hour. <laughs> and I have a nice steam shower every day and I go through affirmations and positive affirmations. And then I journal twice a day. So I start my journal and I ask myself some key questions, how I'm feeling, whatever. And then at the end of the day, how did it go? What did I learn? What would I do differently? So I fill in the blanks and I've got a good streak going, so I, I stay with it now. But that just mentally helps me look after myself. And like I say, I don't even fight depression. And it's hard to relate to it when you don't understand it. It's like if I know my arm hurts or I broke my arm and yeah. you broke your arm, I can relate to you and go, oh, man, that sucks. Or, yeah, that hurts. But with this, it affects everyone so differently. So when we talk about suicide, is it bad, Frank, to ask someone if they're feeling suicidal? No, it's actually more likely they will survive if you ask than if you don't ask. There's an old urban legend. You should never mention the word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed. And Michael is a comedian. I love the rationale. It might give them the idea. Suicide, what a great idea. Yeah. Why didn't I? Yeah. Trust me, literally, there's a better chance that the person will survive if you suspect. And I say, always go with your gut. If your gut tells you they're thinking about suicide, ask them. And ask them flat out, are you having thoughts of suicide? Now, let's say they say they are. They toss that grenade in your lap with a pen pulled. What are you going to do? Well, you said, do you have a plan? And if their plan, Michael, is detailed to time, place, and method, then you need to do your best to get them to a mental health facility immediately. Not a lockdown, just to get evaluated and perhaps medicated. And here's a tip for somebody who's got a loved one or friend at a distance, like a thousand miles away. And you're looking at their Facebook timeline and you're reading stuff that's just dangerous. Yeah, you're seeing social media clues. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do? Well, if you suspect that they are having thoughts of suicide and you're at a distance, you can call the local police department and say, look, I'm really worried. I just, I've been watching this guy's timeline and he's saying things that I think he may be suicidal. Send the cops over to his house, her house and say, look, just simply do a welfare, welfare check. check yeah. Now here's the caveat. If they are actively suicidal, the police will arrest them, take them in front of a judge and they may end up with a three day involuntary detention order, you know, a lockdown without shoestrings or belt. And they're going to unfriend you on Facebook. I guarantee it, Michael, <laughs> but they'll still be alive. Right. Sometimes can be a lifesaver too. So I think the key is how do you bring that up? Because it's such a sensitive subject. And in May, we did an episode on mental health. And if you get COVID and you call into the office and say, hey, I got 
COVID. I'm not coming in for 10 days. I tested positive or I got these conditions. Everybody goes, yeah. oh, okay, good luck. Best to you. But if you're suffering, and particularly if you're an executive or in the C-suite or you're running your business, it's like you can't do this. Or if you're leading a family and we expect to be strong and, hey, we don't want to show any signs of weaknesses. And so that's our societal pressures that are on us, right? It's silent. We don't say a thing and hopefully it goes away, but that's when people are really suffering. Yes. And at risk. And I think one of my videos, the beauty of YouTube and TEDx is this, is anybody with an internet connection can see my TEDx talks. And every now and then I'll get a note on my YouTube channel from somebody. It was a guy somewhere in Scandinavia and he said he was feeling really bad. He's 40 years old, great job, lovely wife, darling, eight-year-old daughter. Couldn't remember the last time he was happy. He thought it was just him. There was nobody else suffering. He came across my video, my TEDx, and realized he was not alone. And so when I wrote back to him, because I always write back, I always give up my phone number, my keynotes. I go, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline, 988, right. which is the new three-digit number. Right. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my phone number. I wrote back. I said, look, when you are comfortable with doing this, I suggest you tell anyone you know, love, and trust what you're living with so they can know what you're going through, can always empathize, but know what you're going through and be there for you when things begin to crash and burn. It's like my analogy, Michael, is if you have a NASCAR and you're running races like Daytona 500, you don't wait till the car is rolling into the pit to hire a pit crew. You make sure right. they're already standing there with the hydraulic thing to change the tires and change the oil. You need a pit crew. You need a personal pit crew. And in the books that my co-authors and I wrote, we made it look like the theme is an automobile owner's manual for a man's brain. If men treated their cars the way they treat their brains, you better buy a bus pass because it needs regular maintenance. You need a pit crew. You need right. to take precautions. There's a reason your car has a spare tire and a first aid kit in the trunk. There's a reason you join AAA because you know at some point... It's going to happen. Tire's going to go... Yeah, so that's how mental illness is. If you've been living with it at some point, Someday it's going to happen. You're going to need help, but it is a difficult conversation to have. It's, well, it's not taught anywhere, right? We don't teach it in school. Nope. The, the more I look at this, we teach diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging. We teach racism or the things to pay attention to. We teach yeah. how we should interact with our families and our friends, and we create awareness around it. But with this, there's such stigma to it. So to me, it looks like there's two parts of the equation. There's the person who's feeling a certain way should be able to feel in a safe environment to bring it up and go, hey, this is an issue for me, or I'm feeling this, but also for the audience or the listener or the observer to pay attention and look for those warning signs. So it's kind of like, pay attention if you see something. It's like with the terrorist warnings. Back when yes. we had 9-11, we had all those different colors and what those warnings. So if you see something, report it, call someone, talk to someone. And it's like, we need to bring it up. So some of the ways we could bring it up is, and apparently these seem safe, but I love your feedback on it. Hey, are you thinking about suicide? Like even asking, yes. hey, are you thinking about it? Have you thought about hurting yourself before? Yep. You use, do you have a plan? Do you have weapons or a plan? And then it's really listening to what they say, even if what they're going through doesn't seem like it's a, a serious concern to us, acknowledge it by validating their feelings and then offering some empathy and some support, right? Let them know you care and you want to help them. And hey, what you're feeling sounds really painful and difficult. So, hey, I'm worried about you. Can we get your help? Can I call you a therapist? Can we help you look for one? Are all those valid things to do? Yes, absolutely. Also, there's something in the suicidal mind, Michael, mm -hmm. called burdensomeness. A person who is thinking about dying by suicide truly honestly feels like the world would be better off without them. The official term is burdensomeness. I knew my wife would be better off financially without me. I right. was worth more dead than alive. <laughs> 
So people say it's a selfish act. Well, yeah, selfish from the outside looking in, but from the inside looking out, I feel like I'm doing her a favor and the world a favor. And so if you have somebody in your life who it often happens with young people, I tell the parents, look, what you don't want to say to them is, honey, you've got so much to live for. That doesn't matter. What you should say at odd moments to them when you think about it is, look, I know it's crossed your mind that the world and your family, us, would be better off without you. But that is not true. There is no way in the world we would ever be better off without you. Just reassure them that you want them to remain. Here's the second thing, Michael. Suppose they are suicidal. They tell you that. But they don't have a plan that's really well defined. Right. What would you say? Well, I could never find any literature to answer that question. So a psychiatrist who lives with a chronic suicidal ideation and I came up with this. You're suicidal but don't have a plan that's really well detailed. I would say, well, are you going to kill yourself? And if you said no, Michael, I would say, okay, tell me why not. Make Mm. them give voice to whatever's keeping them here because something is keeping them here. Otherwise, they wouldn't still be here. That's right. And then once they give you my folks, my children, my animals, that's called a turning point in suicide prevention. You found the turning point. I say, look, how about this? Would it be okay if you and I just cobbled together a plan to keep you safe just for today? So don't make it long-term because they're not thinking long-term. Just for today. Yeah, one day at a time. I always remember back during the Great Depression, Wall Street guys were jumping out of buildings. And I always mm-hmm. thought, geez, why would they do that? I don't understand why they would do it. But I'm not in that mental frame of mind, right? Or when somebody does that. I have known a few folks that have chosen that as an option for themselves. And like I say, the stigmas are there. You've got people who are socially isolated. That could be a thing. They, yep. f- they feel very much alone. It could be a chronic condition. It could be anything, back pain, brain injury, cancer, diabetes, epilepsy, HIV. Yep. So chronic pain and hopelessness when things feel hopeless, right? So that's loss or fear of loss will do that. How about yep. substance use and impulsivity? Does that substance abuse contribute? Yes, it could be either self-medicating. There was a football player, Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel. He was an amazing player. He was the first freshman, I think, ever to win the Heisman. And he played two years with the Cleveland Browns and washed out. And come to find out, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Up until the second year with the Browns, he was treating it with beer, which works. Yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a great long term. No. Uh, No. But again, I had a million dollars in life insurance. The only reason you and I are having this conversation, Michael, is... I knew from my insurance days working in financial services that every life insurance policy has a two-year suicide clause, if at all. Some of them say, we're not going to pay regardless. But I knew mine had a two-year suicide clause. I had to call my agent and find out how long I'd had it. And he goes, 22 months, and then it hit him. He goes, and don't do it, because he had delivered checks. People had called. Yes, your insurance is in force. They killed themselves, and he had delivered the check to the beneficiary. So my life insurance, ironically, I had two months to wait to kill myself. And that's why I'm still here. Well, and to your point, if you'd ask your wife at the time, say, honey, choice A, I can do this and I'll be gone, but you'll be up a million bucks. And when somebody has those thoughts, can we realistically change someone's mind? Like, is that doable? Yes. Anybody can stop a suicide. Again, it's a matter of asking those questions. Are you depressed? Here's the top three signs of depression, Michael. They eat too much or they can't eat. They sleep too much or they cannot sleep. They have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, but they rally in the afternoon like, almost like they're different people. Right. And here's one you can actually observe visually. They let their personal hygiene go. You know, they're usually pretty well put together, but when you see them, even on Zoom, hair's a little dirty, clothes aren't quite so clean. It may be because they're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, run a little wash and shower. I speak to dentists and I said, look, if you 
have somebody lie down in the chair and open their mouth. And they've been meticulous about their dental care. And all of a sudden, it looks like they're not even flossing. That's the time to ask, hey, listen, you seem to be letting this stuff slide. I'm not judging, but is there something else going on that's causing you? And again, when I do dentists, I tell them to Google this, free mental health services, and print out the first three pages from Google, because you'll see some free ones. You'll see some that are on a sliding scale. You'll see some Cadillac plans where you've got to have good insurance. Put it in a plain white envelope. When they check out and pay the bill, hand them the envelope. So you're you're giving them resources, if you believe. I had a practice manager call me. She said, Frank, she heard me speak. Months later, she calls. I got a guy in the chair. I did what you said. I asked him if he was depressed. He said, yes. I asked him if he was having thoughts of suicide. He said, yes. Now what do I do? Right. Right. So I walked her through the process. Yeah. And as far as I know, he's still alive. And I think asking somebody about suicide, we always worried, well, I don't want to put the idea in their head. But studies, as you say, have shown that asking them if they have suicidal thoughts or behaviors doesn't cause an increase in such thoughts. And there's, again, lots of issues. And we talked about different groups or certain types of people have different rates. We also hear, hey, do people threaten suicide to get attention? Suicidal yes. thoughts or actions are a sign of extreme distress. And it's an indicator, obviously, that someone needs some help. But talking about wanting to die by suicide is not a typical response to stress, right? So we should take all of those conversations seriously. Yes. And what you're looking for is patterns. I've got a friend who's my age and his father, when he did not get his way, either with his family or his married family or his mother and father, he would crawl to the window and threaten to jump. And he did it over and over. It's called emotional blackmail. Yeah. So if at some point you realize, wait a minute. This is a pattern. Crime wolf. He does this. Yeah. And I mean, his folks gave him like $40,000 for some business venture when he threatened to die by suicide. And he'd already threatened a couple dozen times. So, I mean, always take him seriously. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Sooner or later, the wolf's going to show up. But yeah, so it can be emotional. Now, there are lots of treatment options and therapies that are available. What we would call effective evidence-based interventions that will help people. So cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. What are some of the top ones that have worked or worked for you that you'd recommend? Well, you know what, Michael? Living in Oregon, <laughs> starting January 1st, there's a psychoactive component to magic mushrooms yes. called psilocybin. And in Canada, the Canadian military has been studying it for several years. That's Not right. legal in Canada yet, but the Canadian military studies, the early results show that it's really good on three things, PTSD, depression, That's and right. substance abuse disorder. Microdose. And... Microdosing, exactly, with therapy. Mm-hmm. And they believe from early results, it may not be a patch like an antidepressant. It may be a rewiring slash fix. Mm, interesting. And in the meantime, if your psychotropics are not working, I would definitely get, I, I got lucky. My doctor just tossed an antidepressant at me and he chose it because it's one of those that does not make you gain weight. And he knew I was training to yeah. do bodybuilding contests. It's just so happened. It worked really well at the lowest dose. He said, do you want more per day? No. It just enough to take the edge off is all I was after. And so, but if it's not work, if it had not worked, I would have gotten the DNA cheek swab and figured out what would work for my, because the drug I take, 50% of the people swear by it. The other right. 50%, it's evil. So it's well, therapy. And I have been reading about that. There's all the therapists, therapies, CBTs, always good. It's really looking at things and reframing them, I think, is what I've been able to get. And it covers lots of areas. Like just because you're not suicidal in your thoughts, but maybe you're depressed or anxious or that Mm -hmm. you can use those same treatments in order to create a sense of well-being and get your mind right. In your wife's brother, is he the therapist that I met? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We came to see one of your shows 
and you yeah. actually met and you guys had a very interesting conversation. Yeah, because he said, Frank, Michael told me about your chronic suicidal ideation. He goes, I've been a therapist for 20 years. I have never even heard because it's not in the DSM, the Diagnostic right. and Statistical Manual. It'll probably be next time. But he said, but looking back over my patients, Frank, thinking about conversations that I had with them and knowing what you go through, I thought, I bet he, uh, I bet she, oh my Lord, I had no idea. A friend of mine just started speaking, Michael, one of my co-authors, Sarah Gare, and she talks about repairing the soul. There was a time up until the early 19th, 20th century, where when you had a mental issue, there were no medicines to throw at it. So you actually had to dig and hopefully repair the soul. Everybody kind of has a different definition for soul. Right. But in early 1900s, they began a medical model where they threw medication at it. And so she would like to see it go back to, at least in the beginning of therapy, to see if we can't repair the soul, what's at the heart of whatever is yeah. going on. The in cause, case, not the DNA. effect. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, I understand if you're a clinician and you've got patients in the waiting room and you really don't have time to dig deep. It's easier just to write a scripture. Yeah. But she's going to try. She's starting a movement. She wants to go back to let's treat the soul first, maybe put on medication in the process to keep them alive. That makes sense. But eventually wean them off as you repair whatever damage there is. Right. But here's an example. ADD, ADHD. The symptoms of those two disorders in children are very similar to the symptoms of childhood trauma. But childhood trauma is difficult to treat, whereas you just throw a little Ritalin at the ADD or ADHD. Or lithium. And you're done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, whatever it is, it works for it. So again, I, I believe she's on to something that we should begin to treat the soul again. Yeah, I think in more ways than one and for lots of different treatments. So in kind of wrapping up for our show today, what should we do if we're in crisis or we know someone is considering suicide? So if we're feeling a certain way, say we notice the warning signs of suicide, change of behavior, our new or concerning behavior, as family and friends, we're often the first ones to recognize those signs. So what are the steps we can then take or how we're feeling? Or if someone tells us that, hey, they're considering killing themselves. I know we shouldn't promise to keep their thoughts a secret. So we want to tell people we want to make a call. And it, was it 988 you said? If we're in immediate Yeah, 988 is the new three-digit nationwide number. Yeah, that's excellent. Or if you're a young person, they discovered that young people are more forthcoming in text. So they started a suicide prevention text line. So text the word help or connect to 741-741, and there'll be a person roughly your age, young person, on the other end to text back. Brilliant. Yeah. Let me give you a couple of the signs somebody may be considering suicide in case they're not forthcoming, but your gut tells you. Right. You're, circling you're the noticing Michael. something. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about death and dying. You walk past their computer and you look at the Google search and they're searching death and dying, how to die by suicide. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork or their music or their writing. They're getting their affairs in order. And here's a big time sign. They're giving away prized possessions. They want mm. to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. And here's a counterintuitive one that I think is terribly dangerous. They've been depressed forever, Michael. Now they're happy for no apparent reason. And you're happy because thank God they're happy. Right. The problem, Michael, is they may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method. Mm -hmm. And they know the pain is finite. Mm -hmm. So what do you say? Here's what you don't say. You're looking for attention. You're being melodramatic. Nobody who talks about it ever does it. What do you say? I've already told you. Do you have a plan? And I tell people, look, when I speak, if you can't ask that question just that way, you find somebody who can. And if you can't find anybody... Call me and I'll ask them. 
Because if nine out of 10 people are giving hints, Michael, that tells me they want to be saved. We can save them. Otherwise, they wouldn't give hints. No, very valid point. Well, Frank, you're definitely the right person at the right time with the right subject matter. And I think if people were calling 988 and you were on the other end of that line, and I know for a fact, just on our conversations, your talks have actually saved people's lives. And that's one of the byproducts of what you do is talking about it and illuminating it. And I've certainly learned a lot from talking with you and also researching the subject and paying attention to those things because it's an issue that can affect all of us and touch all of our lives. And now if people want to get hold of you, we're going to have all your contact information in the show notes, Mm -hmm. but I know they can go to www.thementalhealthcomedian.com and you even offer, they can sign up and get a free copy of your book, Guts, Grit, and the Grind. I think you've talked about that. There's some different yeah. resources available that they can get on your website as well. And we've seen you perform. So if anyone's looking for a performer for one of their events, <laughs> you do a great job and you touch on the subject, but it's really more about the fun things and you bring to it. And it's not to make light of it, but it's to inform and educate. And you certainly are a great advocate for that. And I think the whole movement's lucky to have someone like you who's vulnerable and open to sharing that. And it gives us the courage to share with others as well. So, Frank, thanks so much for being our guest today. Uh, Michael, my goal in life is to save at least one life a day. And so who knows how many people are listening. Lots of people listen to this podcast. Somebody who has chronic suicidal ideation may have just discovered it's a thing and they're not alone. Or they give them the courage to step up. Well, Frank can do it. I mean, he's a comedian and he's being very right. public. So hopefully you and I saved a life or two today. Well, let's hope. And again, we'll have all the information in the show notes. And if anyone does need help, please use those numbers and reach out and know that people care about you and we want you to be here. And people are here to help you with your issues or challenges that you might be having. And if you're having this thought, the world would be better off without me. Trust me, chances are there's nobody in your life who believes the world would be better off without you. Good way to end it. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. Yeah, man.